Hi, and welcome to the latest episode of Sepad Pod, the sectarianism, proxies, and desectarianization podcast based at Lancaster University. Today is a special crossover podcast. I'm really excited about this. I'm speaking today with Joey Ayub. Uh, Joey is. Uh, someone who's been working on on the Levant for quite a while. Many of you will know him from his um, his podcast, from his uh, his his former blog Hummus for Thought, um, his wonderful wonderful current podcast, The Fire These Times. Um, I, I first encountered Joey's work with the Hummus for Thought. Uh, and it was great to, to connect. But he's also a, a Lebanese researcher, a writer, the former MENA editor at Global Voices and IFEX, works on the Levant. He's done a lot of fascinating stuff in terms of, of contemporary podcasts with many guests that that would be of interest to people listening to this podcast. And I'm really excited that we could do this crossover episode and, and that I could talk to Joey today. So, Joey, thank you so much for finding time to, to talk to us today. Oh, thanks. Thanks for having me. It's a pleasure. Really looking forward to it. As I say, I was um, I was first introduced to your work, I think, with with Hummus for Thought. So, can you tell us a bit about about the blog? What what was Hummus for Thought all about? Well, it started off as a, a kind of a small personal private blog with a friend of mine at the time. Uh, he left soon after to do other stuff, and that was in late 2012. So that was still sort of the context of the Arab Spring, and I wanted to talk about some of the issues that were happening in Lebanon uh-huh. that were not really talked about. So one of them, one of my early focus was the kafala system, which unfortunately still have to be writing about today, and uh, migrant rights in general, as well as minority rights such as LGBT rights, among other things. Fantastic. And yeah, so we- that's how it started, really. Those those issues then that were were being ignored. Can you tell us a, a, a bit more about some of them? I'm sure many of us are, are familiar with kafala, but if you could just elaborate a little bit on what on what that was, and 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 maybe some of the other things that that were being ignored back in in 2011, mm. 2012. So the kafala system is a sponsorship system, which that's what kafala means in Arabic, and what it essentially means is that migrant domestic workers have their legal status tied to their employers. It's not yeah. just migrant domestic workers, it can be migrant workers in general, but there tends to be a focus on migrant domestic workers because it's such a gendered uh, category in the context of Lebanon, obviously all of them being women. Sure. And uh, I wanted to talk about this in my early phases of blogging because uh, to be honest, it started out of guilt. I think that I grew up in the system. I grew up, the system has been set up for the likes of me, for the Lebanese middle class and the Lebanese upper classes. And there is something very pernicious about uh, the fact that we don't actually talk about it as much, given that it is literally there for us. Sure. And so this is this is kind of this is what sort of like the early motivation for for doing that. As for migrant rights in general, it really depends on where and which job. Obviously, when it when it came to laborers in general, uh, historically that's been mainly Syrian uh, workers, most of whom have been men, and so there is a gendered nature to that job as well. On the other side, in a sense. And what this has kind of translated is that at some point I came to the realization that a significant percentage of Lebanese society is um, dependent on the labor of a subset of the population, these migrant workers that are, for the most part, simply unrecognized. They're not seen as part of the society. You know, you won't see them on talk shows. They tend to be ignored. No one's actually talking to them directly. It's just like they're only there almost just to provide labor and that's it. Can you give us some data then, Joey? I mean, what sort of numbers are we talking about here? 
Well, um, the last estimate I think of migrant domestic workers is something like 250,000, maybe a bit more, maybe a bit less, especially now so there is quite a few repatriation happening in the context of COVID and the economic crisis. Yeah. Um, as for laborers themselves, migrant laborers, as in like, for example, Syrian men, that's much more difficult for me, I think, to estimate because a lot of them would be uh, working informally. And there's a crossover between uh, Syrian migrants who, or migrant laborers, let's say seasonal laborers sometimes as well, who were already uh, working in Lebanon prior to the 2011 revolution, but then in the subsequent uh, civil war and, and subsequent, uh, yeah, in, in the context of the Syrian war, obviously there has been an inflow of Syrian refugees, some of whom had been migrant workers uh, prior, for example, and others not. So you had kind of this mixing. So it can be any time. It's really in the tens of thousands at the very least, and it can go up to the hundreds of thousands. The official number of refugees, I think, is just under a million. So, you know, uh, half of whom may be men, a bit, I think less than half of them are men. So, so a percentage of them would also be uh, laborers on that front. But then you would have all of the informal stuff. You have some of the domestic work that's simply mm. not taking into consideration. And of course, that's putting aside the household work, which tends to be completely uh, ignored at the official level in any case. So that's kind of, and this is in a country of like four to, four to five million people, possibly a bit more. Lebanon has no official census. So we're talking about a significant percentage of the total population of people living in Lebanon actually being in, the, in these working conditions. It's a, a, a really depressing and, and frustrating situation. For many people, I would imagine here in Kafala, they would immediately think of, of the Gulf. And, and I would imagine that given the, the work that's been done in recent years on on bringing global attention to, to the kafala system and, and how that affects migrant workers in the Gulf. But I think what you're saying in, in the Lebanese case is, is equally devastating and, and equally powerful, yet, yet perhaps not quite as well known. Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, to some extent, I, I can understand it because the scale of what we're talking about in the Gulf is just significantly higher. There's just many more people. Um, but in context of Lebanon, I think it's also very misunderstood and very um, honestly misunderstood. I don't maybe misunderstood is too kind to be honest. But I think there is yeah. an active Lebanese complicity in that system, which I would imagine is also fairly similar in Jordan and in the Gulf, actually. Sure. Yeah. But uh, it's because there's this active complicity that there's been essentially an incentive, if you want, a collective incentive to not talk about it. Because as soon as you kind of open that Pandora's box, you would have to question quite a lot of things about your own personal life if you grow up middle class and even upper working class because, you know, uh, migrant domestic workers are severely underpaid and sometimes not paid at all. It can really be $50, $100 a month and sometimes their salary uh, is completely uh, withheld, which happens fairly frequently as well. And so... I think that's part of the reason why on the Lebanese front, even among the, the vast Lebanese diaspora that we have, if, for example, uh, you're a Lebanese who grew up in Lebanon and uh, you may have a second nationality or you migrated to do your studies abroad, whatever, going to the States, for example, and you're confronted with these uh, racial questions in a country like America, uh, it definitely opens up some of the uh, open. I mean, I, I struggle to say open your eyes because that's very cheesy, <laughs> but it 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 kind of f f allows you to frame things in a different way that you may not have uh, been able to uh, to do before, and this is why uh, there is recently, especially in the Black Lives Matter movement, there's been some. Uh, Lebanese in the diaspora are trying to highlight the fact that we already have black lives in Lebanon that are not mattering. So that's yeah. something that needs to be talked about. And that 
uh, and on that front if you want. So yeah, it's it's kind of this is this is sort of the background to all of this, and obviously it's just scratching the surface here. Yeah, of course. I mean, it strikes me that that there's there's a real passion in what you're doing. That there's a real sort of personal dimension to it. You're you're acutely aware of your your positionality and and if I may, your your privilege in many ways, particularly in, in this context. And. And I, I want to get on to, to the way that you describe yourself in a minute, because I, I love the way that you've put those words together. But but before I do, if I can just ask, what was there a particular moment or time that that caused you to really call into question all of the things that you'd taken for granted up until that point? And I say that in a, in a non-critical way, but we mm-hmm. all have that moment where we have to, to take stock and, and critically reflect on the things that we had just taken for granted and taken as given. Oh, absolutely. I, I don't think there's there, there's ever this kind of like light bulb moment, but it was a several months. I would I think around 2011, 2012, especially that. So I started university in 2010. Uh, I started at the end of 2010. So I started when when the Arab uprisings were starting, really starting in in Egypt and Tunisia. And obviously, in the context of all of this, it's I had I was sort of taking it in, but not fully understanding what was going on. I would describe my politics as like until about that time to be fairly left wing in principle, but not necessarily too sophisticated or too advanced. It was kind of more of a like reaction thing to, to right. some of these bigger questions, and a lot of it was just being done online, to be honest. And it, there was a, a period of moment, like several months at some point, again in that period between 2010, 2011, 2012 where I started realizing that a lot of the things that were in my past, in my background, in my household, for example, in the family that I grew up in, these are actually part of the problem. So in many ways, the reason why I'm speaking to you in English is because when I was four and five, we had a migrant domestic worker who was from the Philippines. Right. And she spoke English fluently, and she pretty much taught me English. I I remember her very well. It's one of my earliest memories. Her name is Eleonore. And she actually taught me English. And to like, I'm simplifying a bit, but that's the reason why at some point when I, I used to read Harry Potter a lot growing up, and I used to read them in French at first, but then I couldn't wait for the translation, so I would switch to English. And <laughs> that's kind of like what strengthened my English. And I ended up having this relationship with a language that's my third language, because French and Arabic are my native languages. Of course. And, and ended up being... Uh, a language that I actually sometimes most identify with because in some ways it was a built language. It's something that I actually had to build, not just for myself, but had to take in from Eleonore, from other people in my life, and to not being this thing. So the realizations started happening slowly, you know, like this this was on the front of the kafala system, the fact that my own uh, well-being, yeah. my own life, the fact that I was, you know, growing up, I wasn't cleaning my own room she was the one doing it. I wasn't cooking my food. She was the one doing it. This is something that at some point, uh, from thinking that it was quote unquote okay, and you end up thinking it's okay because everyone around you who's Lebanese is telling you that it's okay, and they are themselves thinking that it's okay, and they are reinforcing it for themselves, and it ends up being this uh, vicious cycle, essentially. You you develop a, uh, um, a number of mechanisms within you to actually actively not see what's happening. So it's not that you don't know what's happening. It's in the back of your mind. But you end up developing processes within you, if you want, that uh, is actively avoiding seeing what's happening, if that makes sense. And this is this is was something that I had to deconstruct. I had to make myself uncomfortable, uh, mainly when I started volunteering in 2000 and. 
uh, that would have been around the same time, 2011-2012, with the Migrant Community Center uh, in in Hamra in Beirut at the time. Right. And that that's when really I started like I started talking. It was on Sundays because that's the only day that uh, migrant domestic workers are usually allowed to get out to physically get out of the house even, or at least to have a day a, a day of break, which most of them sometimes don't even have. And that's when I started talking to you know an Ethiopian woman and a Ghanaian woman and a Sudanese man and etc etc and they were coming out of households that were very similar to my own household and so this is something that was very obvious you know once you're confronted with it this directly it's never really the same you can't really go back to quote unquote normal which was never really normal especially for them yeah and so these 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 are some of the things that it's it's always been a gradual thing when it comes to Syria for example why I'm so active when it comes to Syria is I really just started meeting a lot of Syrians while at AUB, while at my doing my undergrad between 2010 and 2013, but especially after 2015, when I moved to London to do my masters, and why, that's why I met a lot of Syrian refugees, a lot of Syrian uh, students and researchers and everything who are actually mu- much more active, obviously, on that front than I was when I was still in Lebanon, you know, and so on and so forth. It it, it tended to be personal connections. Some of them accidental. Some of them I would seek them out. Some of them kind of like a bit of both. And, you know, the, the, the rest would follow in a sense. It's really interesting hearing you say that. I mean, two things, two things jump out at me. One is the sense of this, this, I don't know if I should call it intentional amnesia or, or if it's something a bit more, more pernicious than that. But the sort of the blocking out of, of anything that is, that is deemed to be somewhat problematic Mm-hmm. to the self um, but not problematic enough at the time to do anything about it yes. and, and then the second one is this, this thought about increasing awareness and sort of increasing your, your engagement through actively seeking out the quote unquote other the, 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 the person, the community, the group uh, mm-hmm. that has been constructed as an other and it's through that engagement with the other that you've you've become aware of the 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 sensitivities, the problems, the issues, uh, the challenges, the the broader questions that that they're struggling with. Yes, and it had to be transfer like it had to be given a name, and I had to find the vocabulary for it because at some like up until the point where I started figuring that part out. Uh, I just like it was always obvious again this is not like it's no secret any Lebanese who grew up in Lebanon or even non-Lebanese who grew up in Lebanon you know you've seen this it's everywhere it's all around you it's nothing uh, you don't need to be having a PhD or anything to understand what's going on here but I had to sort of find some ways to of making sense of it and I think that uh, that only happened once I started getting into the works of uh, someone like James Baldwin which is why the podcast is called The Fire These Times. It's a reference to his book, The Fire Next Time. And uh, it's, it's, he uh, sort of explained it in a way that I wasn't able to understand it uh, beforehand, or at least not, not as well. And he's the one who pointed out that racism, for example, because he obviously he's an African-American, and so he's obviously talking about that experience primarily, uh, that racism is not just something that black people in the context of America have to deal with. It's something that white people actually need to think about because they, it is there on their behalf. It's there for them. They are the ones who created it. And so 
it's it, you know no no two situations are perfectly similar. It's not it's never the same thing. But in the context of Lebanon, it sort of gave me the tools, if you want, the linguistic tools in a sense, or rhetorical or theoretical tools, if you want, to try and understand what was it about the kafala system, or about migrant workers, so Syrian and Palestinians, for example. Uh, some of whom are refugees, Palestinian refugees, but who end up also being classified as migrant workers in Lebanon. Uh, what what is it about their uh, labor, or what is it about what what is? Let's put it in, in a different way. Why is Lebanese society so highly dependent on labor that is so cheap or free? Hmm. And this is something that uh, has no direct answer. I can't just give you like five bullet points, and this is you know telling you this is why, but it allows me to question things in a different way than I was able to to do before. Before it was like, this is bad, uh, this is a bad thing, we need to change it, and that's about it. I didn't know how, I didn't know uh, what to do, I didn't know, I didn't even know how to respond to the quote-unquote concerns of uh, Lebanese uh, sponsors and Lebanese people in general who were saying, well, if you give them too much freedoms, then maybe they would run off and maybe they would this as though these are bad things. But yeah. then you are because you are, uh, you grew up in like because I grew up in a, in a um, environment, if you want, where you have these things that some of them are inherited, some of them are inbuilt, essentially. Sectarian sectarianism is another example of something that is inherited. I never chose one day to be identified with this particular religious mm-hmm. sect, and therefore that the other people from other religious sects are the de facto others. Those those have never been choices. You know, you grow up in these households, in these mentalities, in these societies. And so to find to find a way to deconstruct them, in a way also to permit others who are trying to de- deconstruct it on their at their own pace, if you want, to give them tools that I didn't have, for example, that's been part of my motivation to sort of speed up the process instead of that taking something like 20 years for someone to wake up to what's happening, it might take them a year or less, if you see what I mean. That's sort of been my, my motivation in recent years. I think it's a really powerful motivation and, and one that certainly comes out in in your erstwhile blog uh, and and in the podcast. But I think it also comes out in, in how you how you describe yourself, how you position yourself to to the online world in the sense that that's the only way that I know you, Joey. At, at this point in time, I hope that circumstances will allow us to meet some point soon. But if I may just uh, use your own words and... Mm-hmm. And just describe how you position yourself. And and I quote here, I identify myself like this. A pessimist writer, poetically displaced, intersectionally angry, writing in the protracted now. And I think that, that's that's beautiful. That really resonated with me when I was doing my, my preparation for this podcast. It it struck me that that's such a beautiful way of of describing the the anger, the frustration. But the the hope and the beauty that can come about from acknowledging and trying to facilitate some form of intersectional change, and I I, I really took a lot out of that and from the the blog and the podcast. Um, yeah, thanks for that. So I was trying. I wrote that sentence after this was maybe like the thirtieth iteration of that sentence. You know, changing <laughs> some words in here and there. And the reason why I just stayed with that, or at least for now, is because almost every single word of them sort of uh, signifies something. 
So Pesoptimist is a is a uh, is a translation of an Arabic fiction book called uh, something the Pesoptimist. I actually forgot the the first part of the title, and I just love it so much because I mean it can mean it can mean it can mean several things, and the way I use it is not actually how it's used in the book. I think, uh, but what it means is that you are. Uh, you prepare for the worst while also hoping for the better, in sure, a sense. Yeah. And it's trying to do both at the same time, accepting that the situation can be extremely difficult, but that doesn't mean that it is difficult because it has to be difficult. It's just difficult because of X, Y, and Z, and so we have to figure out what is X, Y, and Z in order to, to move on, to get over it, to turn it into something that is optimistic, that there is something better. Poetically displaced is because I was... I, I, I had to understand, I had to realize that I was displaced after being displaced. I did not know that I was displaced while being displaced. <laughs> sure. I, 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 moved to, uh, I moved to London in 2015 with the stated intention of just doing my master's and going back to Lebanon. That was the plan. It's a one-year master at SOAS, then go back to Lebanon. Yeah. It was in context of the uprising at the time, which I helped organize the Ustink movement. And it was this, obviously, this feeling that, you know, things are still happening back home, uh, do what you need, and then go back home and help out with protesters and everything. Uh, at some point in early 2016, and at that point, obviously, we have to <laughs> remember what 2016 was. It's the Brexit campaign, it's the Trump stuff, hmm. it's the fall of Aleppo at the end of 2016. Yeah, It's all of that. I ended up sort of uh, taking a step back in a sense and understanding that maybe I actually need to take some break and taking a break meant not being physically in Lebanon. Now, that's one thing I would never actually do it. I would still go back to Lebanon anyway. Whenever there was an opportunity, I would still go back. So I wasn't listening to my own advice in a sense. But it was that was the intention. And so at some point, I started realizing that I was putting myself in a situation, the UK situation in the context of Brexit, where for many people, not necessarily everyone, but for many people, I was already not welcomed. I was, quote unquote, the migrant, because indeed I was actually looking for jobs. So I was quite literally an economic migrant. And that's like the, two, the worst thing you can be in the context of, of uh, well, one of the worst things, the, you can be worse than that. But one of the worst things you can be in the context of the, the Brexit narrative, which was becoming quite hegemonic by 2016. And I started realizing, well, the, wait, does that mean I'm a migrant? Does that mean that I'm uh, a migrant? If, if I'm a migrant, does that mean I'm not going back? Wait, have I become part of the diaspora and I haven't figured it out yet? Like, all of these yeah. questions were happening. And, you know, long story short, a number of things happened in the UK. And yet I had to leave uh, last year. I, I had moved to Edinburgh. I did two years in PhD in Edinburgh. And then I moved uh, where I currently am in Geneva to continue the PhD. I transferred from there. And so I was finding myself sort of following a certain route, but that route kept on being coated in the language of choice, as if I was choosing to do this or this or that. Whereas, in fact, if I had the choice, I would have simply just stayed in London after finishing my master's. But as you know, the visa restrictions are quite severe yeah. when it comes to, to, to uh, students who are not from the, from the European Union or, or yeah. obviously who are not the British. Yeah. And uh, I, I left. I came back on my second passport. I, I'm an Argentinian citizen as well. I, this gave me a number of months. I was able to stay there. That's how I managed to have a relationship with my partner, with, who I'm currently living with in Switzerland. And so this kind of gave me this uh, very real sense that had I not been, for example, if had I not been the second nationality, which just gave me a few more months of staying in the UK, that this might have affected my relationship. And I have met lots of Syrian friends, for example, 
who have said that they have lost their relationship due to distance. They were just not able to maintain it for too long and so on and so forth. Yeah. So this is the poetically displaced. Is it I'm displaced, but I'm not. I'm not officially displaced. Officially, I'm just a student. That's officially what it was. It's always been that. In 2015, I was a student. 2016, 2017, 2018, I'm just a student with yeah. that brief period of when I was technically a tourist on the Argentinian passport. And so this just, you know, created the sense that a lot of my life has basically been following a certain path because every alternative path, my preferred paths, were not necessarily uh, well available. And that's the displaced this, this part. The intersection in the angry is just more, more uh, direct, I guess, is I'm angry a lot of the time and I'm trying not to turn that into some kind of narcissistic anger. And the, be- sure. the best way of doing that is to actually remember that you're not angry on your own. Other people are also angry and they sometimes are angry for reasons that you're not angry. So they may be angry for different reasons. Sometimes they're angry for the wrong reasons. And so you have to understand that as well. And sometimes they're angry for things that uh, you may have caused yourself, whether actively or not. So if we're talking about patriarchy, I'm, I'm a cis uh, straight guy. I have benefited from patriarchal structures from a very early age. I grew up in a household of women, my mom, my sister, and a migrant domestic worker, uh, all women. And there were certain benefits that I got because simply I was the eldest sibling, as simple uh, and bro- uh, eldest male sibling, of course, as simple as that in, in, in Lebanese uh, culture and society, and frankly, in, in most societies in the world. And so I could be angry about things, but I cannot just be angry and not understand that I may be also be part of some of this problem. And I have to understand what that means and how to deconstruct that and how to, you know, do something about it. So just this one sentence for me, then, you know, just required the past. I don't know how long I've been talking about just to explain it. because <laughs> It's been, you know, it, it contains so much. And that's why I, I agree to just stay on this. And it, it it's curious enough, if you want, that uh, when someone reads it, it might... Um, lead them to ask me about it and then we can have a productive conversation because if i just tell you i'm a lebanese guy who has uh, these multiple identities palestinian italian argentinian whatever i was born in france but i'm not french i uh, my father is swiss but i'm not swiss etc etc that that is an interesting story but then it's just like it's like you're taking cat you know you're taking nationalities here and there and you're saying well yeah, yeah that's exactly. curious that, that's interesting that's exotic that's fun that's whatever you know it doesn't actually say much it's a bounded story whereas i think your story and the story of so many other people are are unbounded but driven by these these intersectional questions issues and angers exactly yeah yeah so i think that's um i think it's such a really powerful way of of putting it and it really spoke to me i'll be honest it spoke to me in a slightly different way those words and Mm -hmm. i could identify with them in in a number of ways, and and hearing your your justification and your explanation for them, I I read them in a slightly different way. That maybe is a conversation for us to have off air, perhaps. But uh, yeah, I thought it was so it was so important, so powerful, and it speaks to to what you've been doing as as you with your your work, your your podcasts, your your research, and your your activism. And I, I wanted to talk a little bit, Joey, if I may, about um, about the 2019 protests. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, I'd love to talk to you about You Stink at some point as well, but I'm conscious that you have a very busy day and we've been going for quite a while. But I'd like to, to just wrap up the, the podcast talking a bit about... Uh, about the events of, of late 2019 and, and the protests, because it strikes me that 
that those protests speak to a great deal of what you've been talking about on this podcast so far. And it must have been um, quite an exciting moment for you. Yeah, absolutely. I, I was there from the first day. So it started on the night of October 17. I was there in the morning of October 18. It had relatively calmed down in the early hours of that morning. But even then, you could feel that something was different, like something is different here. And in those next couple of days, I remember it was like, I think it was a Thursday that it started. So I was there on the Friday. Yeah. And so there was the weekend. And so that's when the numbers came back up. And that's what sort of allowed the momentum, if you want to keep going. And I, I honestly had almost given up. I have, and people um, can, like, I have proof of this. <laughs> like, I, I, I have a conversation with Dr. Andrew Arsene on, on uh, the podcast, which was done like a week after the protest started. <laughs> right, okay. And we had, um, the reason we organized uh, that uh, podcast is that I, I, I wrote a review of his book, uh, Lebanon, a Country in Fragments, which I highly recommend to everyone. And I had published this review something like a week before the uprising started, mm. so in like October 10 or 11 or something. And in that review, uh, if you read the review, you can see that there isn't much hope. Like there isn't, um, I wasn't writing this to say, hey, let's understand Lebanon. And maybe if we understand it better, we might have better tools at our disposal. Because it's never that simple. It's not just, like knowledge is not enough. And I think that's an important uh, thing that I, I, I sort of understood since then, if you want. But then October 17 happened, and what was amazing about it is that there was this momentum that was being created by a lot of people who simply had enough, like khalas, as we say, like that's enough. <laughs> yeah. And we we have to deal with this concrete problem in front of us. There was this so-called WhatsApp tax, which was just kind of like the trigger, but it was really much more than that. There were the very bad fires, the horrific fires that we saw for three days in that same week. And it's the fact that the WhatsApp tax came after that rather than dealing with what happened then that was sort of the trigger in a sense. I know a lot of media just focus on the WhatsApp bit. And the, the, the momentum, the feeling of being there, many of the guests that I've had on my own podcast have described it very succinctly, which is like it was a high. Like we were all high together. And that was something that I, I, I even struggled to this day to really describe. Sometimes I find myself just going through uh, all of these videos that I filmed because I have this Twitter thread that that's almost two months long and almost completely unbroken. And the reason why I did that is to document, but just to remind myself in a sense, because I knew that I was, you know, I, I was in this transition phase between Edinburgh and Switzerland. I, I was applying for the visa in Lebanon. I knew that obviously I would have to come to Switzerland to continue. So I knew that there would be an end to every th all of this as far as I was concerned, of course, as in being physically present there. Yeah. And uh, sometimes I find myself going back to that thread scoring. Sometimes, honestly, it could be a few hours even just to see those videos and see what was said. Because in the current context of how the economic depression, the COVID-19 stuff, the, the really the horrific stuff that we're starting to see, and which unfortunately seemed to be uh, to be worsening, and this continue to worsen at least for this for the near future, uh, you know, as far as as far as uh, we can tell, uh, this is is what allows me to sort of remind myself that this this actually happened. It's very important that we have these physical, uh, sorry, these visible reminders, and that's why I, I I strongly believe in the in the power of archiving everything as as many things as possible when it comes to to uprisings, and unfortunately, I think Syrians have learned the, the very hard way that if we don't have enough uh, videos, on, although they have quite a lot, but if we don't have even more videos in 2011 that are organized 
in in a um, in a in a purposeful way to document what's happening, not just to film and then upload it, but to actually say this is what's happening, put it in a, in a sort of a coherent narrative in a timeline. If we don't have that, then we might have foes like the Assad regime, the Russian government in the context of Syria, of course, and the Iranian government that mm. have significantly higher resources, uh, like bigger resources when it comes to media and, and all of that, that they would actually be able to play that narrative game yeah. and even come on top sometimes because they have uh, superior resources. Exactly. And so I took that with me in the, in the protest in October, and I wanted to make sure that we document as much as possible. I knew that the current government in Lebanon would have a vested interest in obviously demonizing us and calling us agents of whatever, Israel, Qatar, the Saudis, what have you. Hmm. And I knew it was extremely important for us to absolutely film everything. Yep. And we were lucky that so many people were filming so many things, so many social media like so many activists on social media were filming so much. And we also had the, the TV stations that were just filming live. So even if you wanted to put a spin on it, it was very difficult to just deny what was happening if you wanted to film live. And so that that was sort of the, the that was sort of the moment, if you want, October, November, December, until uh, I, I came to Switzerland early February. So until like January and so that was really the moment that um, that like that's how I could describe it, if you want. That's as good as it gets as of now in terms of how I can describe it, in a sense. Yeah, it's it's fascinating hearing you you speak about that and speaking about it in such such positive ways. I was obviously watching at a distance um, with regard to this. I was supposed to be in Beirut for a workshop on uh, during one of the the weekends, but uh, my wife wife's health meant that I wasn't able to travel. Uh, but I was watching very closely in terms of, of what was happening and it was so exciting, so exhilarating to, to watch vicariously. So I can only imagine what it must have been like to be there and to having gone through the, the whole sort of personal existential journey that you and so many others have gone through in Lebanon. That, that must have been such a powerful moment, particularly after, after you stink and the frustrations of, of that and then the... the 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 moment of possibility back in in late October November December January even exactly but yeah then, exactly uh, unfortunately then you, like you have some well the COVID nineteen yeah. uh, stuff started happening around then as well of course so that did slow things down but the economic crisis was just worsening partly due to that but partly due to two uh, previous factors as well. Joey, can you say um, maybe just a few lines about mm -hmm. where things are right now, please? Yes. So that's, of course, difficult. Uh, yeah. But what I would say is that the underlying conditions that led to the uprising slash revolution slash however people want to call it in, in October, those exact same conditions are still there. And those exact same conditions have actually worsened since then like significantly worsened since then. Yeah. And so it's just an objective uh, statement to expect, I think it's reasonable to expect that protests will start again very soon. They have started, they have uh, pop been popping up for the past several weeks, but not yet at the level of October 2019. But I do think that at this, at this point, there will have to come a time where the same people that have been uh, feeling exhausted and burnt out by the combination of COVID-19 and the economic crisis and everything else, those same people will sort of find their energy again because there is really no other way, to be honest. There's no other 
uh, option in front of us. The current government cannot stay. It cannot exist the way it is. Everyone knows this. Even so, honestly, sometimes I think some of the people who actually support these parties, deep down, they understand that there is something fundamentally corrupt and wrong about what's happening. But at the same time, I'm not going to, of, of course, sit here and say that this is what is likely to happen or unlikely to happen. Yep. I think that the, the pushback by the government and by the sectarian parties that are in government, uh, unfortunately, most notoriously Hezbollah and its ally Amal and the Free Patriotic Movement, means that we also have things that are not just about Lebanon. So when it comes to Hezbollah, there's, of course, the Syrian question, the Iraqi question and the Iranian question to take into account. And that's extremely difficult to do if you're just this person on the streets trying to demand for your rights and trying to ask for something as mild as some reforms or even as toppling the government. That's one thing to worry about. But then to also have to worry about the regional consequences and everything, that can be extremely overwhelming, to say the least. And so this is something that I think is going to be played out again and again and again and again on the streets. Some of it is going to be online. Some of it is just going to be some like rhetorical fights on televisions and whatnot. But it's inevitable that it happens at this point. I, so I, I hesitate to say that it's good that it's happening because I don't think any of this is particularly good. Hmm. But it's definitely happening regardless. And I think that we need to find a way to turn this entire energy, this mess of energy, into something that might be more long term. Otherwise, I think that we might do this, like succeed in doing this and then having our moment, so to speak. But then a lot of people are exhausted. Some people will be forced to migrate due to the economic crisis and whatnot. And that would sort of reset the clock in a sense. Well, it's never that simple, but it would feel like it's resetting the clock back for a few more years. And I, I don't think we can afford that. Sure. Well, thank you for that. I, I realize it's difficult to to speculate, and it's difficult to reflect on some of these things when, uh, when these these myriad crises have come together and, and had such a, a devastating impact on on protests, not only in Lebanon but elsewhere as well. But I appreciate you doing it. I, I'd like to just end on a, a positive note and just ask mm-hmm. you, Joey, just to. To point people in the direction of this unbroken two-month-long Twitter thread that people can look at and see uh, documentary, archival um, images and videos from the uprisings as a moment uh, or a series of moments of, of hope and something to to inspire them. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's all on Twitter. My handle is at uh, Joe Ayub. It's just my first name and, and last name. And if people want to f- find it faster, I think they can just write on Twitter, uh, Tripoli or Beirut, for example, the two main cities that were protesting that I was documenting, uh, followed by my name, and they should probably find it with a thread, because as I said, it's really just one thread. Fantastic. So that would be that would be a fast way. And other thing that I, I can uh, suggest is that I have written a number of essays on the, the uprising while it was happening uh on uh well on various websites but the archives is just on my personal website so they can find the archives and then go on the websites if they want as well and your personal website is joeyub.com yeah it's just my first name last name.com fantastic well joey i'm pleased that we could end on a positive note or a slightly positive note with positive (laughs) memories at least thank you so much for joining us today it's been absolutely fascinating uh it's provoked a lot of thought in me as well about about a lot of things not just lebanon and and that's one of the things i love so much about your work and your podcast that it's it's provoking questions about the world in which we inhabit so so thank you for doing that thank you for joining us and uh i'd like to uh, to pick your brain again some other time about about a whole host of other things so we'll have to do this again sometime but thank you Absolutely. so much
Absolutely. Thanks for your time as well. As always, thanks for listening. Until next time.